Well, good morning. My name is Bill Gorman, and I serve as the campus pastor here at the Brookside campus. And let me just add my welcome to, to John and the bands. We're so glad that you're here this morning, so thankful that you've joined us today and um, are worshiping with us together in community. Um, like the video mentioned there about My Christ Community, if you've been around uh, a little while, uh, last few weeks we've introducing this new tool on our website. If you have any questions about getting connected with that or logging in, um, just get in touch with us here at the church. We'd love to help you uh, get logged in. Um, it is a great way to stay connected um, with one another and be able to contact one another throughout the week outside of Sunday morning. Well, we are beginning a, a new series this morning. Uh, we've been in the book of Hebrews, and we're launching into something new for the next uh, nine weeks this summer. Um, and so before we get into that part of our morning, I just want to pray and uh, ask God's blessing, um, ask his help as we not only look at this passage from Isaiah this morning, but really on this, this whole new series that we're going to be doing together this summer. Um, so I'm just going to pause and, and pray for that right now. Uh, Father in heaven, um, we're thankful um, always that you have revealed yourself to us. And um, I pray it almost every week, but I'm so thankful for your word. Uh, I'm so thankful for the Bible and that you have uh, not left us to, to wonder what you're like, um, but you've actually given us, um, revealed to us uh, through your people, recorded in your word, um, this living and active document that reveals who you are to us. And so I pray that um, both this morning and throughout the rest of the summer as we ask this question of who are you and, and does it really matter what we believe about you, um, that we would see you more clearly and that our lives would be transformed by seeing and loving you uh, more deeply. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, uh, to start off this morning, um, as we engage in this new series, I actually want to do a little bit of work on, on the whiteboard as we begin. And uh, so you're, we have a big room. You're probably all not going to be able to see everything that goes up here. I'll try to write large enough. Um, actually, I'm a little bit thankful that you won't be able to see everything because they don't have spell check on the whiteboard or autocorrect. So, um, but I just want to start off and ask a question, the question that's up here, um, who is God? And so I just want us to shout out a few things. So if you were to think about who is God? What are some things that come to your mind? Creator. creator. Okay, good. So, God's creator. What else? What else comes to mind? Provider. Provider. Okay. So, great. What else? I heard something else over here. Father. Good. So, creator, provider, father. Let's do one or two more. Healer. Healer. Okay. Trinity. Okay, so healer. These are great. Um, and Trinity. Okay, good. Um, okay, so these are great, and these are all really good uh, church answers, um, and they, they're right answers. Um, but I also wonder if, if you were to imagine, okay, I'm not sitting in church and, and talking to the pastor, um, what, would, what, what would you say then? What, what would you think about God? Or, or maybe another way of saying this, um, what would your neighbor, what would your next door neighbor say about God? You know, um, if, they, if you were just to say, man, this guy, my neighbor doesn't go to church, but if I were to ask him the question, what does he think about God? Who is God? What, what would they say? Invisible. Okay, good. Can't see him. What was it? Mean. mean. Okay, yeah, mean. Judgmental, Judgmental yeah. Unknowable? Yeah. One or two more? Confusing, yeah. What else? Far away, yeah. Distant. 
Yeah, and I bet, I bet you know, we're talking about our, our friend here, um, but I bet some of us in this room have felt this way about God on this list too. I know I've felt some of these things um, in my life. So we have kind of what, what we're supposed to believe about God, kind of what maybe some of us actually believe, what some of our friends believe about Him. I think there's even another category we could put up here, and, and these are the things that, that compete for God in our lives. So we have things like that want to play the role of God in our lives. So things like money, we have relationships, um, sex, power, comfort. These are all things that sort of, they want, they want to be God in our lives. So we've got kind of these three categories of, of who we think God is supposed to be, who we're, we're supposed to believe He is, who we kind of actually think He is. And then these are the things that, that sort of compete for God in our lives, the thing that actually want to be God in our lives. And so this morning, really throughout this whole series, we're going to be asking the question, who is God and does it, does it really matter? Because these things that, that on the second list or the third list over that, that are the competing with God in our lives, those are the things that they want to give us meaning, they want to give us comfort, they want to give us security. Um, those are the things that if we lost them, we wouldn't just be sad or disappointed or grieved, but we actually wouldn't want to go on with life. So the question is, does it really make a difference? Does it really matter what we think about God? And it does because, at least for one reason, that wrong ideas about God, they wear us out. Wrong ideas about God are often at the core of why we struggle to change, why we often give in to temptation, they're why we continue to be so focused on ourselves rather than on other people. They're, they're why we don't share our faith more. They're, they're, they're why we don't wait better. You see, if, if there's anything that's difficult in life, it, it's trusting a God we can't see, right? I mean, someone na- named it, invisible. God's invisible. And yet there's nothing that God wants more for us than for us to trust Him. And, and yet we find that the very thing that God wants most from us is, is often the hardest thing to do because we can't see Him. And so lying in bed at night, falling asleep, or when you're in a meeting and you're, and you're bored and your mind begins to drift, we wonder, can I really trust God? Can, can I trust Him with my singleness? Can, can I trust Him with my kids? with my money? Can I trust Him with my struggle with same-sex attraction? Can I trust Him with my health? Can I trust Him with my infertility? Can I trust Him with my safety? You see, I, I think we all wrestle wondering, d- does God really see? Can, can He really act? Does He really care? And not in some sort of just kind of hypothetical, theoretical sense, does God care, but, but does He really care about me and my life? Can He actually do something in, in my life? And basically, when, when we are wondering those things, we're asking the question, is my God big enough? Is He big enough to be trustworthy with, with those things? And in Isaiah chapter 40, we find God's people, and sometimes in the Old Testament they're called the, the people of Jacob or the people of Israel, they're wondering the exact same thing. John read it for us earlier. God asks, why do you say, O Jacob, and speak, O Israel, my way is hidden from the Lord, and my right is disregarded by my God? 
So, so why did God's people feel that way, you know, this is several thousand years ago? Why were they asking that question? Why did they think that God didn't care about them? Why did they think God didn't see them? Well, they were facing um, a certain and, and brutal destruction at the cruel hands of the Babylonian Empire. And they were asking, God, do you see what's happening? Do you see the enemy who is surrounding us? Are you going to do something? In other words, God, God, who are you really? Do you care? And, and this is the question, again, that we're going to be asking this morning as we look at Isaiah chapter 40, but it's also the question we're going to really be asking all summer in this series, does it really matter? We're going to be asking who God is and does it really matter what we believe about Him? And when we start to answer the question, who is God and, and does it matter what we believe about Him, really we're starting to do, uh, we're starting to do theology, now, I know for many of us, when we hear the word theology, we're thinking, oh gosh, this is going to be really complicated, really boring. This is something that, man, if you just got too much time on your hands, maybe you think about theology. And, and I think often when we hear the word theology, we think of something dull, and we think of something that's abstract, something that really can take us away from really knowing God, right? I mean, have you ever felt like this? It's like, man, I, when, I, when I'm just out alone in, in nature, even with my Bible, or just even on a hike, I really feel close to God. As I sit down with a book and start reading about God, I just feel distant from Him. C.S. Lewis, um, back in, during World War II in Britain, uh, had this objection from, uh, from an old kind of hardened Air Force officer who said, look, I've had experiences in the desert, in the vastness of the desert, where I've felt God. And anything you're going to talk to me about in theology is, is less real than that. And I love the way that Lewis responds to this, to this objection. He says, Now theology is like a map. Merely learning and thinking about Christian doctrines, if you stop there, is less real and less exciting than the sort of thing my friend got in the desert. Lewis says, Doctrines are not God. They are only a kind of a map. But if you want to get any further than feelings, you must use the map. Merely feeling God leads nowhere. In fact, that is just why a vague religion all about feeling God in nature and so on is so attractive. It's all thrills and no work, like watching waves from the beach. But you will not get to Newfoundland by studying the Atlantic that way, and you will not get eternal life by simply feeling the presence of God in music or flowers. Neither will you get anywhere simply by looking at maps without actually going to sea, nor will you be very safe if you go to sea without a map. And then Lewis concludes, he says, in other words, theology is practical. If you do not listen to theology, that will not mean that you have no ideas about God. It will mean that you have a lot of wrong ones, bad, muddled, out-of-date ideas. And so the map that we're going to use, theology as a map that we're going to use throughout this series this summer, is actually um, our, our doctrinal statement as a church, the statement of faith. And we're not going to cover all of it. We're not going to be able to go into every detail of it. But the goal during this summer is during each one of these messages is to pitch, pick one passage of Scripture and ask the question of this text, what does it say about God and why does it matter? So this morning we begin with Isaiah chapter 40. And we're going to ask two questions of Isaiah chapter 40. The first one is, how big is your God? That's the first question. And then we're going to ask, why does it matter? So how big is your God? And then why does it matter? 
Now, Isaiah 40 is one of my favorite passages in all of the Bible. Isaiah is an amazing book in the Old Testament. Isaiah 40 is, is just one of the most beautiful parts of the whole book. And it's, Isaiah is part of what's known as the prophets, so the prophetic literature. And many of the prophets are written in forms of, of poetry. And that's actually what we find here in Isaiah chapter 40. And while poems are, they're beautiful, they're memorable, um, they're vivid, they actually, they don't like to be outlined, which is hard for me as a preacher because I love to outline them and, and put them into a form. So this morning, rather than trying to outline all of Isaiah chapter 40, what we're going to do is kind of get our outline from the last few verses that John read, but then we're going to go back into the various parts of Isaiah chapter 40 to sort of fill it out, draw on this beautiful and powerful poetic imagery that the author includes. And the first thing that we see in the book of Isaiah chapter 40 and verse 27 is that God sees and he cares that the God of the Bible sees us and that he cares about us. So again, verse 27 says, Why do you say, O Jacob, and speak, O Israel, my way is hidden from the Lord, and my right is disregarded by my God? Again, Israel thought that God no longer cared about them. They thought that God had forgotten them, that he had abandoned them. But this couldn't be further from the truth. In fact, all of Isaiah 40 expresses just the opposite. It expresses that, that God has limitless knowledge that he sees and he cares for us. There's actually a great story in the Old Testament, in the very first book of the Old Testament, uh, Genesis, um, that just highlights God's ability to see and care for us. Um, it's the story about um, a, a man named Abraham. And uh, God makes this promise to Abraham that he would make him a great nation, and that actually God says, I'm going to bless the entire world, Abraham, through your descendants. Um, there's just one problem. Abraham and his wife were really old when God made this promise, and they didn't have any kids yet. Um, and so, humanly speaking, it seems like this is, how is this going to work, God? Um, but God makes this promise. You're going to have a son. But time goes on. It passes. Nothing. No son. Abraham's starting to question. He's starting to wonder, God is, maybe I didn't understand. I and he thinks, well, maybe, what if I sleep with one of my wife's servants? Maybe that'll be a way. Maybe that's what God wanted me to do. So actually, bad idea, uh, really bad idea. Um, but he goes ahead with it anyway, and she gets pregnant, and they have a, have a son. Well, as you can imagine, um, this doesn't create a lot of harmony in, in Abraham's house. Uh, now Sarah, his wife, is jealous of Hagar, uh, the servant who bore the son, and uh, the place is miserable, and Hagar is so tormented by Sarah, that she gets to a place where she decides she has to leave. And, and I can't even imagine this. So, so Hagar has given birth to this son, but her life is so miserable, she, she feels like she has to flee and leave her son behind to be raised by Abraham and Sarah. And Hagar is just in this place of utter despair and misery, and she goes out into the wilderness. She doesn't even really have a place to go. She's a foreigner. And as she sits down in utter despair, an angel of the Lord appears to her and speaks words of life and comfort and hope to her. Promises her that she and her son will have a future. And I want you to listen to how she responds in Genesis 16, 13. This is Hagar. She gave the name of the Lord who spoke to her. You are the God who sees me. For she said, now I have seen the one who sees me. 
I bet there's been a time in your life where you felt like Hagar. <laughs> or, or if you haven't had that time, there's probably a time that's going to come where you feel like everyone is against me. No one, no one knows me. No one cares about me. No one understands me. In those moments, remember, God sees. He's the God who sees and he cares for you. He's the God of life. So how big is your God? Does he see? Does he care? Well, second, we can have confidence that we have a God who sees and cares because of what we find in verse 28 of chapter 40 of Isaiah. Uh, He says, Have you not known, have you not heard, the Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He does not faint or grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. And, And here what we find that God is both stronger and smarter than the gods we imagine or, or the other things that we compete with, that, that compete to be God in our lives. And so the, the real God is actually stronger and smarter than those imaginary gods and the things that compete to be God in our lives. And he's stronger than anything in creation because like someone mentioned here, he is the creator. Listen to verse 12. He says, Who has marked out the waters in the hollow of his hand and marked off the heavens with a span, enclosed the dust of the earth in a measure, and weighed the mountains and scales and the hills in a balance. And the answer is, is God has. He's the only one who has done that. God holds the vastness of the Pacific, the Atlantic, the Indian Oceans. He holds them in the palm of his hand. And he holds both the Himalayas and the Flint Hills. <laughs> Did you notice he says the mountains and the hills? So we got the Himalayas are covered and also the, the Flint Hills, the, the hills out there in western Kansas. He holds both of those in his hands. And, and not only that, he can weigh them on a scale like, like we weigh apples in the produce section in the scale. God can take all, he just sets it in the scale. He can weigh it. Verse 25 and 26 tell us that he, that he holds the stars in place and not only that, that he has named every single one of them, and he knows their names. Listen to verses 25 and 26 from Isaiah chapter 40. To whom then will you compare me that I should be like him, says the Holy One? Lift up your eyes and see who created all of these. He who brings out their host by number, calling them by name, by the greatness of his might, and because he is strong in power, not one is missing. If you go online for 50 bucks, you can actually go to the International Star Registry and you can name a star and and give it to someone as a gift, which is actually pretty cool. Um, But just know that that the one who made the stars has already named every single one of them. And he knows their name. He's also stronger than every other power. If you look at verses 15 and 16 and 17 in, in Isaiah chapter 40, again, God says, Behold, the nations are like a drop from a bucket and are accounted for as dust on the scales. Behold, he who takes up the coastlands like fine dust, all the nations are as nothing before him. They are accounted by him as less than nothing and emptiness. When I was reading that, that picture of this drop in a bucket, I, I thought of the moment, you know, if you've ever been emptying the dishwasher and there's that coffee mug that was a kind of flipped upside down, and there's that little space on top of the coffee mug where a little water collects, you know, and you sort of just shake it out in the sink before you put it in the cabinet. Those little drops of water that fall out in the sink, all of the superpowers of the world, Russia, China, the United States, all of that political and military might are like those drops in the sink from your coffee mug 
compare with God. So is your God big enough? Here are a few signs that that maybe you haven't thought of God in this way. That, That you worry more about others think than what God thinks. That you pray more to your doctors than you do to him. And we're all for doctors. But who are we ultimately trusting? That you freak out and are constantly worried about politics, that you're worried about war and violence all the time, that you treat disease and natural disasters as somehow outside of God's jurisdiction. So, so is your God big enough? Is he, is he big enough to, to protect your children, to provide for your needs, to heal your relationships? Do you, is your God big enough for that? But, but just having a God who's strong isn't enough, because just having a really strong God could actually be terrifying, because what if, what if he's cruel, or what if he, he doesn't know what he should do with all that power? So a God who is only strong is potentially terrifying. We also need a good God who is smart, who's wise, wiser than us, wiser than any of the things that compete with God in our lives. And if you look at verses 13 and 14, Isaiah says, this is true of God also, who has measured out the spirit of the Lord or shows him his counsel. Who did he consult and who made him understand? Who taught him the path of justice and taught him knowledge and showed him the way of understanding? Again, the answer comes back, No one, only God has these things. So again, do you view God as smart? I mean, I wonder if we would have, we could have probably put that one up on the board, but when we think about God, when we think about who Jesus is, do we we think about him as being brilliant, as being smart? Uh, Again, these are maybe just a few signs that that we don't think of God as being smart, as as being wise, that we view him as kind of being outdated, like, you know, God, he's kind of in the past. He hasn't really been able to keep up with technology, iPhones, sexual ethics, all this stuff. He's just a little bit out of date. Or maybe a sign that we don't really believe that God is wise is that we sort of fudge on his commands. It's like, God, he doesn't really know what's best for my life or how it should work best for me. Or, or you kind of pick and choose what you like in the Bible that you make big decisions without consulting him. I think another way that, that we think that God isn't smart or wise is, is we think he doesn't have anything to add to our vocation. And that we assume, like, God doesn't know anything about finance. He doesn't know anything about, about the law or about medicine or engineering or nursing, whatever it is that you do. But, but if he really is all-wise, all-powerful, he knows about it all. So the God of the Bible is not only big, he's not only smart, he's, he's not only wise, but he's also good. And the good news about this God is that he gives, he doesn't just take. If you notice in verse 29 of Isaiah chapter 40, the text says that he gives power to the faint. And to him who has no might, he increases strength. See, every God in your life, everything that competes for God in your life, whether it's a career, whether it's a relationship, whatever it is, is going to ask you to give it everything. And it will take and take until you have nothing 
blessed. So if you make your career God, if that's the thing that gives you meaning and ultimate significance in your life, that career will ask you to sacrifice your family. It'll ask you to sacrifice time with your kids. It will make you a slave to your performance. It will make you miserable in the end. So every God takes, including the God of the Bible, he asks us to give him everything. We sing the song, actually, uh, often that says, has this line in the chorus that says, he gives and he takes away. But there's only one God that asks you for everything, but then gives you everything in return. He actually gives himself to you. He gives power to the faint. Only one God asks you for everything and then gives you everything in return. Every other thing that competes for God in your life will just continue to continue to take and take and take till you're consumed. Only one God asks for it all, but then gives you himself. No other God gives himself to you. God's power and wisdom are made perfect in our weakness. This is the good news that's declared in verses 9 and 11 uh, in the beginning of the chapter of Isaiah. It says, Go up on a high mountain and proclaim good news. Lift up your voice with strength. O Jerusalem, proclaim good news. Lift it up. Fear not. Say to the cities of Judah, Behold your God. He will tend his flock like a shepherd. He will gather lambs in his arms. He will carry them in his bosom and gently lead those who are with young. So again here, what are, the, what are the signs that we actually don't think about God in this way, this, this God who, who gives everything to us, who provides for us, who seeks our good? I, I think signs that we don't actually think of God in this way are that, that we don't go to Him when we're hurting, that we don't cry out to Him when we're hurting, that, that we don't tell Him how we really feel. I mean, He knows. Tell Him. Tell Him if you're disappointed with Him even. He can take it. He can. You assume that his love is for others, but not for you. I mean, so many people here would say, yes, God loves, yeah, God loves everyone. God loves you, but you're not really sure if, if he loves you, if he loves me. That, that you obey him out of fear rather than out of love. That, that you assume that when something bad happens in your life, that, that some tragedy or some hardship comes into your life, that, that God is God out to get you, to punish you in some way. You see, every God will eventually demand everything from you. There's only one God who gives himself to you completely. And, and there's so many more things we could say about God. I mean, we could spend weeks, months talking about who God is, and we, we don't have time to do that. This is even just a tiny sliver of everything that the Bible says. And it's actually just a, not even everything that Isaiah 40 says about who God is. But our doctrinal statement summarizes it this way. It says, we believe in one God, creator of all things, holy, infinitely perfect, eternally existing in a loving unity of three equally divine persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, having limitless knowledge and sovereign power, God has graciously purposed from eternity to redeem a people for himself and to make all things new for his own glory. But the question is, is, does that really matter? Okay, that's a great statement. I'm glad we, we have that as part of our doctrinal statement. But does it really matter? When, when I go to work tomorrow morning, does that statement make any difference? When I go to school, <laughs> does it make any difference at all? And this is what Isaiah tells us in verses 31, or 30 and 31. He gets to the point of ask, answering this question, does it really matter? 
He says this, he says, even you shall faint and be weary and young men shall fall exhausted, but they who wait on for the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary and they shall walk and not be faint. If you remember, we said at the beginning that wrong ideas about God, they wear us out. They bring us down. They, they crush us. And worst of all, actually, they diminish God. They, they make him seem small. They make him seem less than who he really is. When in fact, he's the exact opposite. He's not distant. He's near. He, he's not angry. He's full of grace and love. So is your God big enough? Here's at least three reasons why it matters. First, it, it matters that because the bigger your God is, the smaller the alternatives seem. So the bigger that your view of who God is, the smaller all these things that compete with God to be God in your life, the smaller that they seem. So, so the better you understand who God is and, and how much he loves you and, and how his design has worked it out in your life, how big he is, how holy, gracious, loving, beautiful, the less power the things that compete to be God in your life will have. Your career, your kids, your marriage, money, sex, power, etc. Those things will have less power in your life. The bigger God gets, the smaller those things will seem. And if you want to have sustained victory over sin in your life, if you really want to be transformed, you, you have to deal with the level of desire of what, what, are you, what does your heart long for. And the only one who can really satisfy the longings of your heart is a God who's this big. You were created to worship a God that big. And, and if he's not that big, everything else will let you down in the end. There is no one like this God. I love Isaiah 40, 18. It says, to whom will you compare God? Who will you liken him to? What likeness will you compare him to? There's no one like him. So in the face of this God, we, we have to admit our, our own smallness, first of all, because anything less than that is, is idolatry. When we make ourselves too big, or we make other things too big, or we, we make other people too big, we actually we lie about who God really is. And we fail to tell the truth about who God is and, and who we are. So we need to establish habits that, that constantly remind us, that regularly remind us of, of who God is, how truly incomparable he is, that he is better than all the other things that, that crowd in and seek to have that role of, of defining who we are. Some of those habits are if you, if you reading the Bible regularly, celebrating in song. We, we sang together these great songs that remind us who God is together. Do you ever wonder, why do we sing together on a Sunday morning? Why don't we just listen to the band sing? Because we need to speak to one another the truth about who God is. Have you ever thought about that? As we sing together, you're not just singing for God, I mean, in worshiping Him, or for your own benefit. You're actually telling the good news of who God is to everyone around you. That's why we sing together as a family. Because we're, we're reminding each other, remember, remember who God is. There's lots of other things we could say about listening to a sermon, spending time in creation. All these things remind us who God is. But second, it matters because the bigger your God is, the better you can wait. If you notice in, in verse 31, Isaiah declares that those who wait on the Lord will renew their strength. 
And the word that's translated wait here in the ESV, that's the version of the Bible we have in the ESP, is if you look in the NIV, which is another popular version, actually that word is translated hope. And the word contains b- both elements of wait and hope in verse 31. It means to wait patiently and also to rest trustfully. And this is hard for us because, you know, and, and I've said this a lot of times, but it's true. I think we need to be remembered, reminded of this often, is that we just live in a culture where we just don't have to wait for anything. I mean, I've got Google Fiber in my house, um, so my internet is fast. And if I have access to Amazon.com and a credit card, I can buy just about anything in the world, whether or not I have the money, and have it delivered on my doorstep in two days. We just don't have to wait for anything. You don't have to save up the money because you got the credit card, and Amazon will bring it to you in two days. We just don't have to wait for a lot as people. But you can't do better than waiting on God. At the end of the day, to wait and hope and trust in Him will never ultimately let you down. And I say will not ultimately let you down because the very reason that we're called to wait is because we don't have the things we long for yet, right? So we're caught in the middle. We live in this time between God's promise and the fullest expression of God's provision of that promise. And so we have to wait. We don't see everything yet set right. We feel the brokenness, the sin, the rebellion in the world still. And so we have to wait. But that waiting will not be in vain. If the one that you're waiting on, the one you're hoping in, the one you're trusting is a God who's this big, the one who can weigh the nations and the mountains in a scale like you weigh apples in a grocery store. And then third, it matters because the bigger your God, the braver you'll live. When, when God is big, you have courage and strength because everything else seems so small by comparison. Over and over again in this chapter, Isaiah asks this question, God asks this question through Isaiah of, who will you compare me to? God, there's nothing that me- measures up to God. And when we realize that the power of the nuclear arsenals of, of the world's superpowers are just a few dribbles from the faucet with comparison to God, man, that changes how brave we're able to live in the world. It gives us a, a renewed courage. I mean, it matters as we look at our prayer lives. And the size of our prayers reveal the size of our God so often. I'm so convicted by that. I, sometimes my prayers are so small, and I think it's because I don't truly have that big of a view of God. It matters in the way that we structure our lives because we all grow weary, right? The promise of this text is that, that those who are really weary will be lifted up. But it's part of being creatures. We weren't made to be able to run constantly 24-7 without any rest. We were designed to rest. God created us with rhythms of work and rest in mind. And when we rest in God, when we trust Him, we find that our strength is renewed. It gives us the strength to take a day off, to not check our work email on our day off. It gives us the, the strength to actually take a vacation, and, and not feel guilty about it, to not feel f- afraid that if I'm not there at my desk that things are going to fall apart. Because here's the thing, God never stops working. Even when you fall asleep at night, He's still working. Even when you turn off the computer and go home at night, He's still working. He never sleeps, so you can sleep. 
I remember one of the, the hardest things for Rachel and I, when we first brought home Lucy, she's six months old now, but when we first brought her home those first couple of nights, the hardest thing for us to do was to sleep. And not because she was crying. She was actually a great baby. She slept really well. But it was this moment of, I remember Rachel kind of looking at me, so okay, well, one of us will stay up with her while the other one sleeps and the other one will get up. Because we couldn't bear the thought of this little one not having someone constantly watching over her. But we weren't designed to stay up all night. <laughs> Trust me, I had stayed up a lot of those nights and we're not designed for that. And, and every night now, our prayer together is we just have to hand her over, kind of symbolically hand her over to God, say, God, we're going to sleep now. You've got her. You're the one who has to, he's doing that all the time, but there's moments when we're awake where we feel like we have some part in, in watching over her, right? But at night, you realize we entrust this little baby to God to, to keep her alive, to protect her, to keep her safe. Only when you have a deep understanding that God never stops working, will you ever be able to rest? God's comfort and renewal are are not about ease, but they're about strength. In our weakness, he's made strong. These, I love how one commentator put it. He says, these verses assert that the God who upholds the stars also supports his weary people. The God who upholds the stars also supports you. Recently, um, a family in our congregation uh, has been facing firsthand the reality that what you believe about God really does matter. When Adam and Amy Ballantyne found out that Amy was pregnant with their second child, a little boy they named Simon, they were thrilled. Actually, I remember the night I was at your house for a community group meeting, and we were sitting at your dining room table, and you told me, we've got some news. This isn't out yet, but, but Amy's pregnant. We're They were so excited, and I was so excited in that moment with them. However, as the pregnancy progressed, it became apparent that not all was well with Simon. Sonograms and and tests revealed that this sweet little boy, the sweet little Simon, had something, a a disorder called trisomy 13, and it's it's a genetic disorder. And and the news that Adam and Amy received is that, look, this this is always fatal. Maybe a baby might be stillborn, or you might get a few hours, maybe a day with him, but this is, this is always fatal. In God's grace, Adam was able, Amy and Adam, they were able to, to carry Simon to full term. Actually, Simon was born alive. This incredible gift. And Adam and Amy were, were given the gift of not only have Simon born alive, but they were able to take him home. I remember we prayed that that would be a possibility, that they'd be able to take this little boy home. And Simon lived for seven days and 22 minutes before going home to be with Jesus. So does it really matter what you believe about God? I just want you to read some words that Amy wrote. She says, we never intended to find out any of this information about Simon, but God knew better than us. He always does. God was and is so amazing with this timing. He slowly revealed Simon's health challenges to us little by little. I can remember him speaking to me along the way, don't be afraid, Amy. Pour out your worries and fears to me. And as we have shared before, verses from Isaiah 55 have spoken very much to us. And Amy copies this verse from Isaiah 55. She says, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither your ways my ways, declares the Lord. As the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts higher 
than your thoughts. And Amy continues, she said, God continuously reminded us to place all our trust and hope in him, not to try to make sense of this. We allowed him to work through Simon, and we have seen more fruit produced than we ever could have asked for. Thank you, God. And as we continue to walk this journey, as I believe it will never be over, we look further into Isaiah 55. And she says, I believe these, we are living these verses right now. And there's, there's three exclamation points after that. And she says, this does deserve three exclamation points because it does excite me. And then listen to Isaiah 55, 10 and 11. For as the rain and snow come down from the heaven and do not return there, but water the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my word be that it goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing which I sent it. For you shall go out in joy and be led forth in peace. The mountains and the hills shall break forth in singing, and all the trees of the field shall clap their hands. And Amy says, yes, Lord, you continue to give us living water. You show us where you want us to go. You have filled us. We do not feel empty. Simon has touched so many, Lord. Thank you. And now we go out in joy and peace, singing your words and clapping our hands in worship and praise. She says, we truly look forward to praising you at Simon's memorial. And that memorial service we held here last weekend was truly one of the most powerful and God-honoring moments I've ever been a part of in my life. I actually have posted a a link on the Brookside section of our website. If you go to the website and click on Brookside, there's a link on there where you can watch kind of a, a video from that ceremony. I would encourage you to watch it. It's so powerful. see, it matters. It matters so much, so deeply what you believe about God. Is your God big enough? Let's pray. Father in heaven, I pray that, that you would continually show us more of yourself that we would be satisfied by, by your, your vastness and comforted by your nearness, that when you do things that make no sense to us, that we would have such a deep trust in you that we would continue to be fed and nourished and blessed and encouraged by you, that we would have the, the, the ability to cry out to you and, and say, God, this doesn't make sense, but I, I trust you. Help us to be a people whose lives are massively shaped in every dimension by the vastness and the nearness of who you are. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we celebrate communion here most weeks at the Brookside campus as a reminder of those two things, a reminder of who God is and of who we are, and of the good news of the gospel, which is how those two things can be brought together. God is this infinite, holy, distant, amazing, beyond all comprehension God who's holy, and we are small and broken and, and sinners who have rebelled against him and said we don't want anything to do with him. And then in the midst of this, Jesus comes, and the gospel is what allows us to be reconciled to him. And communion is a meal that just reminds us of that good news, of who God is, who we are, and how we can have a relationship with him. And so if you're new here, I just want to explain how we do this uh, in communion. So we've got four stations around the room. There's two in the front and there's two in the back. 
Um, and this one here in the back has gluten-free communion elements available if you need that. And so just gather in groups of four or five, six around the, the table and take the bread, dip it into the cup, and then partake together as a group. Um, you don't have to be a member at Christ Community to celebrate communion with us as a church family. If you are a follower of Jesus, if you've placed your hope and your trust in him, um, you're welcome at the table. Um, expect that a number of you are here this morning and you're like, hey, I'm, I'm not sure if that's where I'm at yet. I don't know if I feel comfortable being a part of this communion moment. That's great. We'd love, love just to invite you to use this time to reflect on who God is, the vastness of who he is. Ask him, um, God, help me to know you. Are you speaking to me? Use this time to reflect on that. Ask him to help you watch for him in your life. So Jesus, on the night that he was betrayed, he took bread, and after blessing it, he broke it, and he gave it to the disciples, and he said, take, eat, this is my body. And when he had given thanks, he took the cup, and he gave it to them, and he said, drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. This is the good news of the gospel. Sins can be forgiven. So come now to the table and taste and touch the good news that God has come near in Jesus, and he longs to be in relationship with you. Come when you're ready.